Welcome to this edition of the Then Again podcast at the Northeast Georgia History Center. This is Glenn with you as always. And today it's one of the ones I've actually been looking forward to because this is a history nerd fest podcast. I have with me Dr. Michael Prue at the, the University of North Georgia. So tell us why I've chosen you for this. Hey, Glenn, thanks for having me on. Other than other than being a sadist, I guess. Yeah. Uh, no, At North Georgia, uh, I'm on the Dahlonega campus. My areas of specialty are Rome and Greece, and then a distant uh, specialty on medieval Europe. And so my actual research is in the Roman Empire, but of course, often these uh, th- that Mediterranean world is is culturally the same, and they um, rely heavily, or at least the Romans rely, rely heavily on the traditions of ancient Greece, and in particular when it comes to their concept of history, uh, sort of cause and effect relationship of why things happen. You know, why are they now the way they are? And they they search back, and they they rely heavily on, if not taking lock, stock, and barrel from an ancient. Greek concept of how history works. I can add some insight into that, in, uh, primarily coming from a Rome perspective, but really getting into um, kind of, the, I think, the, the meat and potatoes of, of an archetype of historical inquiry uh, that, of course, uh, is largely attributed to Herodotus, the father of history, and then, um, and then taken up by sort of modernizing it by, the, <laughs> by Thucydides and his sort of scientific approach to things. Um, uh, and, and so we can kind of hopefully get into a little bit of that. Would you like me to go into? What yeah, let, let, let's do that. Because what I wanted to do was title of this podcast is who's better Herodotus or Thucydides? Who's the better historian? So so tell us a little bit about each and then and then you and I can get into a, a great big fight over who we like. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, well, so from what we know about Herodotus, uh, he was sort of this inerrant, uh, you know, traveling historian of sorts, uh, a gatherer of knowledge. Uh, what's happening in this in the early fifth century BC is uh, things have quite developed in terms of Greek um, city-states and culture, and they have already developed a, a kind of a pan-Hellenic idea of Greekness in comparison to the world. So Herodotus is now moving around in this world and and <clears throat> kind of writing things down and composes a, is his great histories, which seeks to understand kind of this, in a way, an origin of the great conflict of the Persian Wars. Living at the same time, historical contemporary of Herodotus is Thucydides. They overlap each other. They live in exactly the same time period. Herodotus roughly about 484-ish to about uh, 425. And then uh, Thucydides, uh, we think roughly about 460. And there's a debate about exactly when he may have died. Some people say 410, 411. Some People say maybe living into the middle 390s. Nonetheless, they are historical contemporaries writing two different kinds of history separated by about 50 years in terms of the historical arc. I think a good way to describe is a historian, two historians who were born in American historians, one writing about a World War II, the Great Patriotic War against fascism, and then maybe one writing about Vietnam and what happened there. You know, sort of maybe in that kind of same contemporary uh, sort of brothers in, in academia. Um, the, uh, the the Herodotus view of history has largely been viewed as, you know, historical tradition has called him pretty much a fabricator. The father uh, of lies. The father of lies. <laughs> <laughs> I think of a Will Ferrell line um, from uh, Elf. 
you sit on a throne of lies. Um, Somewhat like that, right? Because when you look at his stories, some of the, you know, they're well-known, well-documented kind of, you know, crazy stories about big ants, you know, in India uh, that are big as foxes or, uh, you know, a cyclops and griffins stealing gold from each other in Europe. And, and it's fantastic description of the city of Babylon, which is clear he's never been there before. Um, unbelievable fortifications he describes there. So it's, and it's sort of this hodgepodge of stuff that he gives multiple, and this is the historian in which is really interesting, gives kind of multiple explanations for things. He's like throwing everything in there. And so it has been, it has been sort of described by one modern, uh, famous, uh, respect, well-respected Greek historian saying, He's allowing us, the reader, to determine what truth is, given these kind of multiple, I'm giving you everything, you know, right. from little green men to, you know, the engineers that built, you know, the pyramid or something like that. Um, and her, and Thucydides, in sort of another sort of kind of perspective of this, we know very little about, um, other than what he tells us. And from what we can t- guess is he is uh, an aristocratic, well, he fought in the Peloponnesian War, um, was crucial for an important campaign, and he had the unfortunate the circumstance of losing that was exile. And that's how he writes his history from the perspective in many ways behind the lines because he's interviewing people, we think. He says so pretty much. He knows people and he's writing from things he's known personally and then things how he thinks they would have played out given the what may have been said given how things played out. In terms of the, the two perspectives, one uses speeches, a lot of them. Now that's Thucydides. Herodotus uses kind of stories. Uh, it's been described as sort of eth- Greek, ancient Greek ethnography and anthropology to, to get at sort of culture, mm-hmm. to explain why things happen the way they happen. And ultimately, his great climax is the Persian Wars, uh, the great conflict. And Thucydides is, is using what he argued was evidence, speeches largely driven by that matchup with events, uh, outcomes, so to speak. Um, He has in the neighborhood of, I think, 140 some odd speeches, um, to which he claims, as I mentioned, he heard deliberately or or directly, I should say, or he uh, knows of, or he can imagine this is what the speaker said, because this is what they did. And so he, there's a kind of a drama that he creates in those. And so who is more true? You know, a historian (laughs) really gets into, you know, this very straightforward question really can open up a Pandora's box about why do historians do what they do. We're talking 2,500 years ago. We could be asking this exact question Mm -hmm. right now, right? Is it Stephen Ambrose? You know, say World War II historians. Is it Stephen Ambrose? You know, his history from the bottom up, the soldier's experience? Or is it, you know, a history from, you know, Eisenhower's personal memoirs, you know, the cab, him and Churchill sitting in a cabinet room, the big sort of great man view of things. Right. So I don't know how far I should be going with this, but maybe we can kind of just open it up with some questions, I guess. That's a great brief introduction to these two, that they really are the foundation of what we think of as history today. They're the first written records of any of this. And therefore, we as historians, all historians sort of look back and use them as sort of the guides. And, and they are two very, as you say, they take two very different approaches. And for a long time, I think, you can correct me on this if I'm wrong, but Herodotus was sort of always looked at askance by historians because he did put some of that that crazy, fantastic 
fantastical stuff in there and people leaned on Thucydides. But I personally, as I, and by, for in full disclosure, I have not read them in the original Greek. I have, of course, read translations. So, neither have uh, I. Yeah, go, you <laughs> only, know, only critical passages where it comes down to issues like, okay, what, what might actually be happening? That's where right. we rely, a lot of us rely heavily on the very standard tr- uh, translations, but it's always good to dive back in to, to make sure you're not assuming. So. Right. But Herodotus to me feels more, more like a modern historian, I guess, because he's saying, you know what? I hear, here are the things as I understand them from another city, from another culture. I don't exactly buy what they're saying, but here's what they told me. And I'm going to maintain their story intact and, and just go from there. I'm not going to try to modify it in any way. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, we're, I, and we're going to take that approach. I think that is a great observation because, you know, as storytellers or sort of the second source of repeating, we filter and, or we tend to anyway. Uh, and that says something about us and why and we may not exactly know why we do it. And this is why cross-examination is really good. <laughs> because you're like, so you said this now. And, and I think that is to, you know, let's give Herodotus some props here. He has cast the net. Or there's an event he heard about. He cast the net and, you know, he interviewed the dog catcher <laughs> as well as, you know, the, the detective on the scene. And you're going to get maybe different different views. And he's saying, this is what I, you know, they say, I heard those kinds of phrases, which cue him doing a couple of things. One of them is, listen, you decide. And then in some cases, you know, I'm going to give you some, I'm going to give you, you know, the, the car chase, you know, the something titillating kind of right. thing that get us to salivate over a good story. And I, yeah. So I think that methodology, which Herodotus, I'm sorry, Thucydides does not do, has its merits. And and from a cultural historical perspective, that is gold because you right. get into the minds of what people, what's circulating out there in the ether about their worldviews. You really don't get that with Thucydides. He's sort of telling it in his very political, economic, military kind of framework. And it fits because we also think that way too. Right. And we can only get so far with it. And if you're looking for, yeah, so as a historian trying to, you know, consume and keep your antennae open up for as many things, Herodotus really uh, surpasses and creates a model that for all of the lies, <laughs> those lies are truth to people back then. That's yeah. the thing, right? And, and you know, uh, I think there's that's an incredible value as well. Absolutely. And, you know, the, as you say, he's casting it, he's casting it so wide because on this history that is supposedly about the Persian Wars, you get, I can't remember how, there's a good chunk on, on ancient Egypt, the stories he had heard. And he's just, he doesn't, he analyzes without passing judgment, I guess is the way to put it, on a lot of these cultures. He seems, ab- he seems as fascinated with ancient Egypt as we are, right? He's, he <laughs> loves it. Even though he's I, never been there, he doesn't, he, you know, the stories he's heard, he's like, this is so good. I have got to write this down. It could be very well. <laughs> that Herodotus created our enduring fascination with that culture, with ancient Egypt, because he's the closest to that event or that period, writing in the language that we have more regular access to. Archaeology and, of course, Egyptian hieroglyphics open up another entire universe that, but that spark of inquiry and 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 um, sort of oddity, but attraction also is, I would say, hugely Herodotan in that sense. Before the Persian Wars, you correct to say, yeah, he spends a ton of time on Egypt and all of these tiny little things. And then he spends some time on a group called the Scythians, which is in its own, how he weaves in the history of the Scythians with 
Persia and then ultimately Persia's head-on collision with the Greek world has, scholars have noted or have argued, a rhetorical function to it. So how he's, his curiosity about those cultural differences is what he's also using to explain his version of a greater truth right. about and, you know, how the Greeks were able to defeat the Persians. Right. And it's, he's, he sort of has privilege to sit and do that when, when Greece is more or less... At, mm-hmm. at, at a point where it's it's beaten the big outsider, right? The, the yes, Persians it, have been defeated. That's um, correct. Yeah, whereas, they are at the, they're at their high tide of their sort of imperial democracy, if we could call it that. Right. Yeah. And, and I love your analogy of, of Thucydides writing not during World War II, but during the, the Vietnam War, because Thucydides is has participated in and is writing about a period where the the Greek the you know the panhellenic culture is tearing itself apart. I know a civil it's not quite a civil war because they're not one group, but there there's so much inner fighting. He's seen the end of yeah. of the Greek golden age, right? And it, so that's it, going to change how he tells his stories. How he tells a story exactly, right? So the goals or the their sort of objectives are different. How did one su- de- defeat how the small defeat Goliath, so to speak? And then and the other one is how did what we have end? And that's a very different kind of story. Um you know you correct that they they didn't have a unified political system. Greeks Greek the Greek culture in the ancient Greek world was highly highly independent of each other they fought each other more than they fought anybody okay that's right, that's right. the history of it and <laughs> but they shared a common cultural set of identities and this is this notion of the panhellenic idea it's common language very common if not exact religious systems you know sort of cultural definitions social definitions of each other except for sparta is a real outlier in that but <laughs> but the, and that's what's coming apart for thucydides it's coming apart and he's he's asking why is it coming apart right because in this long story and and i think he's got some strong feelings about that it's the demos it is the demos mm-hmm. being led by self-serving sort of greed uh, i should say gain-seeking politicians using sophistry for their own personal benefit and they're driving this ideal into the ground it is it is a tragedy it's it's you know it's like an oedipian tragedy when you think about how he's revealing the story there's incredible good guys incredible bad guys you know white hats black hats so to speak in a classical sort of way right and then and then these unbelievable tragic events amoral activity (laughs) where this notion of might makes right that's it and that's that's the reality that he's sort of lamenting is that great minds like great leaders like Pericles died too soon and guys like Alcibiades filled the gap. And that's how it ended. Right. No, I, <laughs> that may be the best summation mm-hmm. of Peloponnesian War about Thucydides that I've ever heard. Pericles, Pericles <laughs> died too soon and then folks like Alcibiades took over. Yeah. And, and that Thucydides, just, just as Herodotus is history and ethnography, Thucydides mm-hmm. is definitely history and maybe political science, right? He's, oh, yes. he's also yeah. the first political scientist, one could say. <clears throat> Yeah, I would agree. You know, he is still, of course, signed at the War College as as absolute required reading because he still provides, many people have argued, the most realistic description of a democracy at war with itself. And this is part of both Herodotus and Thucydides' view of their, their truth they're seeking is human nature. And whereas Herodotus saw human nature as a freedom versus constraint, individuals versus monarchies, despots, who are always seeking too much more and, and over hubris, overstepping their bounds. 
her uh, Thucydides is doing very much the same thing. That the search for human nature is this, is that without logic-minded oligarchs, <laughs> the, the demos, the people, are less susceptible to the ones who are thinking more about themselves than, than the greater good. And you kind of see this in the debates, right? The Malian debate, <clears throat> the Mytilian debate. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry, the Malian debate, the Mytilian um, sort of debate about killing the cities, <laughs> you know, execu mass execution of entire cities and the way they throw around these absolute ideals. Um, and, it's, and, and, and they're very aware that they have an empire and they're saying their ultimate logic is we better do it to them before they do it to us. That's the way human nature works. And I think that's part of what Thucydides is lamenting is that, is that guys who advocated that, it was like that could have been put in the bottle, but guys who opened that bottle and advocated mm -hmm. and released it to use for their own. Uh, and so, yes, I think it is, he, he is profoundly important because we see tendencies in human nature. We do like to buy stuff. Like we want more, <laughs> the, the best, the more, things like that. And, and we want to destroy our enemies politically. You know, that's kind of the nature of what we call healthy democracy. Right. right. Healthy democracy is a And in the Greek world, it was getting rid of <laughs> quite literally. A sense I got from Thucydides was the demos, the people. He really wanted to give them credit and to believe that they could do the right thing. But I, I, I got in the end that Thucydides was like, you know what? They're awful. They're yeah. just, the demos can't be relied upon and because of human nature. And as a result, I'm not sure what needs to happen, but it doesn't need to be a democracy. Yeah. And, and this is very, so this is in line with, you know, the kind of the uh, thinking of the time, let's just say, right. So these histories, all the things we have written from a perspective of the Aristoi, people who call themselves the best and, and they, they, you know, created their own sense of why they're the best. And part of that was, well, we are educated, but we have things to protect, our things. And if you don't own enough property as me, then how can you make decisions for me? You know, that, that sort of notion of a higher social hierarchy that parlays into political privilege. Um, and, and yes, so the deem, and this is in line with Plato, of course, his Republic, mm -hmm. right? His idea of the hierarchy. That's why they write in glowing ways about the Spartans. <laughs> they fear and hate them, <laughs> but at the same time, it's like, yeah, but you know, they got it under control. And, and so there's this weird fascination with Sparta about that, and which has led some scholars say everything that we know about Sparta, which is written much later, written by this, this, this elite group of Athenians, basically, we have to hold suspect because because they might be creating an image that fits their philosophical, mm -hmm. political worldview. I think the consensus is, no, the Spartans were the way they were, <laughs> but they're also glamorizing these ideals. And I think you're right. It's um, And democracy, you know, you interview Thucydides and interview one of the boat rowers, ask them what democracy was. And it was, it would, for them, it would have been the greatest days, greatest thing since sliced bread. They got paid to row a boat. And those guys were good. They trained all the time. And one of the great calamities is the, the Sicilian expedition they lost over 30,000 boat rowers and that is the heart the beating heart of their Athenian military system was the free or citizen who was paid to fight for his country and and you know you talk if it would and this is what makes it so interesting is if, if we had sort of a of a Hesiod version uh, you know Hesiod is the great antithesis to Homer mm. uh, you know the dark age world written from Tudor perspective right Top down, bottom up. If we had it, let's just say, you know, the voice of, of those guys, the boat rowers, 
And what they would say, they would, you know, they loved Alcibiades. Right. <laughs> they loved Cleon. They loved these guys well, who talked them into. <laughs> well, that, yeah, the Sicilian expedition wiped them out, but who voted for the Sicilian expedition? Exactly. They yeah. did. Exactly. Yes. And, and this and this is, you know, this kind of thing about Thucydides' point is like, yeah, because they don't know any better. I mean, that's <laughs> sort of the way. Um, and so he lays the blame on, you know, really the the um, the struggle of leadership, I think, is part of this this sort of nexus that we're trying to get at. And um, human nature is the way it is. We like to collect things, and I want mine as opposed to letting you have yours. You know, this sort of there's this right. idea of sort of Greek competition in that. Um, but um, at the same time, if that if that's how the rule is, then the elite should know better. The Aristoi should know better, and guys like Pericles knew better. He planned the defense of Athens for years had the unfortunate you know that didn't plan for the plague mm, wow came wiped out him and his family <laughs> yeah. but and then the other guys came in and, and said uh okay we're gonna export the war we're going on the offensive and you know a defensive war versus offensive war that may some scholars of course say that that's where it went wrong they could have just sat outweighed the spartans it sounds like a very familiar in our world right in terms of the civil war here you know and i'll say this is we could go for hours on I this know, thoughts, trust me but uh-huh. you know that we we started this podcast off the idea was who's a better historian but i guess we're at the point and you can uh, you, you can take this if you want and, and expound on it a little bit sure maybe 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 there's not a best maybe the key if we're going to understand human nature, the ancient world, mm-hmm. modern relevance, I guess you need them both. I think so. I think so, right? Because they're both, they're doing different things. Uh, well, th- there's sort of this search for an explanation on how we work as humans, like what drives us to do what we do. And they tell different stories to get there. They are telling different events, right? The stories revolve around different events. One is sort of underdog wins versus how did we lose? Like, how did it all come crashing down? Um, but yeah, I think they're they're not mutually exclusive. And and what's lacking in Thucydides is, you know, the the non-great man kind of approach. And he talks about that he has this long section on the calamity of the of the plague. He really does. But the entire 30 years was a calamity on, on Greek populations. Uh, it's not just the soldiers dying, it's entire populations starving to death. Right. And, you know, and so, and that's, I think, what if Herodotus was still alive, he would, you know, that, interesting. How would they both tell the same story, like report the same event? And, and so, yeah, I, I'm like one of these people, I don't like true false questions. And if I write them, <laughs> if I write them, I want my students to really think hard before they say true or false. Right. And yeah, I think, you know, we as historians, because that's what we are. We live, we, we live in the gray. We look for the gray because the notion of an absolute yes or no, right or wrong, you know, that is, it's, that's a very limited, restricted way of exploring, trying to seek truth and um, understanding why people do what they do. That's really taking you into the human experience. And so I think you need a heavy dose of Herodotus to get into that cultural, the cultural dynamics, you know, traditions and things like that. All the stuff that are lies, again, I think are truths because he heard them, you know, right. that's, that's sort of uh, their perspectives or perceptions of truth. The kitchen sink matters. <laughs> <laughs> well, that the, the kitchen sink is an excellent note to end on. But, but like I said, we could go for, for hours. We may have to do another one of these where, we just, where we just talk about the Peloponnesian War and, and all those things. Because it's, folks, if, if I strongly recommend if you 
haven't read uh, haven't read these, get a translation, even get an abridgment, and you will be much the richer for it to read these two works. That is all the time we have. Dr. Prue, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. We will definitely have to have you back. And my pleasure. I had a great time. Perfect. Folks, thanks so much. We hope you've enjoyed it. We hope you continue to listen, and we'll see you next week uh, on Then Again. But until then, stay safe and take care. Then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps other people discover the show. There are a few great ways to support the History Center. Make a donation online by clicking the Donate button on our website at www.negahc.org. Become a digital member to receive exclusive invites to members-only live streams every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. And you can register on our membership page at www.negahc.org. We also have an online gift shop with lots of great items for all ages. Use promo code THENAGAIN for 15% off your online order. Valid on anything except memberships and handmade items. We'll see you next week for another episode of Then Again. Thanks, y'all.